Our second lesson for this Lord's Day comes from the Gospel according to John. We are in chapter 12, uh, the last half of verse 36, and then reading to the end of the chapter. Again, if you have your Bibles with you, let me encourage you to follow along with me. When he, meaning Jesus, when he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. Even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Lord, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe because, as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and deadened their hearts so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. And yet at the same time, many, even among the leaders, believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they would not confess their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved praise from men more than praise from God. And then Jesus cried out, When a man believes in me, he does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. When he looks at me, he sees the one who sent me. I have come into the world as a light, so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. As for the person who hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save it. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. That very word which I spoke will condemn him at the last day. For I did not speak of my own accord, but the Father who sent me commanded me what to say and how to say it. I know that his command leads to eternal life, So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. And herein ends the reading of God's word to us this day. May all praise and honor and glory be to him and to him alone. Amen. The passage that we have just read marks the conclusion of Jesus' public Ministry. Following this, John's focus will turn to Jesus' interactions with the twelve alone. Jesus will no longer perform any miraculous signs. He will no longer engage the authorities in verbal banter and exchanges. He will no longer provide any teaching to the people. This is what he means when he said in verses 35 and 6, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. So from this point forward, Jesus Jesus will be focused upon the twelve and preparing them for what is about to transpire. For what is about to transpire will shake them to their core. 
Let us not forget that the disciples have left their livelihoods behind. They have gone on the road with Jesus for three years, dedicating themselves to following him, even as they have had a ringside seat to the most powerful words and miraculous actions of the very Son of God. They have much time invested in this one, whom they believe will deliver Israel in a manner no less spectacular than that of Moses. So when Jesus willingly surrenders himself to crucifixion in a couple of days, it will stun them. It will shake them. It will trouble them to the point that their own faith will be tested. And they will spend many hours from the moment of his arrest and crucifixion until Easter morning trying to make sense of what will strike them as as a tragic end to an otherwise promising future. And so Jesus is entering into a different phase at this point as he brings his ministry to the masses to an end and prepares to minister to the twelve in the hours that are remaining to strengthen them for what is about to take place. Now John offers an assessment here of Jesus' ministry by indicating that the vast number of Jews did not believe in Jesus as Messiah. After all the miracles that Jesus wrought, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Galilee, after all the teaching and preaching that Jesus did wherever he went, after engaging in table fellowship with friends and antagonists alike, after deftly responding to the most vexing questions designed to entrap him, The descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have still not come to a recognition of Jesus as the fulfillment of all the promises of God. D.A. Carson says they are like the ancient Israelites whom Moses addressed. With your own eyes you saw those great trials, those miraculous signs and great wonders, but to this day the Lord has not given you a mind that understands or eyes that see, or ears that hear. Now such an assessment might cause some people to say that God is the cause for those ancient Israelites being stubborn and rebellious. They might suggest that God was actively preventing them from coming to faith. That if God had simply left them alone, they would have believed. But what we need to see is that God acted graciously towards them in a variety of ways, but not the least of which was putting on full display for them a series of miraculous signs and wonders, ten mighty plagues that affected an entire land that should have dispelled any disbelief and caused them to fall on their faces in worship. Particularly when God parted the Red Sea to save them, and then wiped out their foes when the sea returned to its previous boundaries. But God's gracious activity towards them did not result in them setting their pride aside and surrendering to God their Savior in worship. Instead, they wanted a God that they had fashioned, one that would be their divine servant. And that hardness of heart 
resulted in God pulling back His grace and allowing them then to suffer the consequences of their stubborn pride and their disbelief. And we see this pattern repeated in the history of Israel as well as in the history of the world. When people ignore the signs that God has posted throughout the created order, when people ignore the signs that God has offered through the gracious ministry of the saints, when people hear the gospel repeatedly but do not turn to Christ in repentance, there comes a time when God withdraws His grace from them and they fall deeper into their stubborn defiance and rebellion. And this becomes a judicial hardening of their hearts for which they and they alone are responsible. In Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, a portion of which we read a moment ago, the Apostle Paul articulates the great advantages that the children of Abraham were afforded, and yet that great grace did not engender in them the kind of response that should have been forthcoming. Instead, the people rebelled against God by chasing after other gods. And so the one true God withdrew His grace from them, even as He sent to them prophets like Isaiah, whose proclamations to them caused them to reject God even more, increasing the hardness of their hearts and the blindness of their eyes and the deafness of their ears. So imagine what occurs here as the very incarnation of God's eternal Son is dazzling them constantly with amazing miraculous signs and they are unmoved. No sooner does Jesus perform one sign and they're demanding another sign to prove that He had the authority to perform the first sign. They are a people that are so blind to God and the things of God. But it is not because God actively blinded them, but they themselves are responsible for their spiritual condition of sin. John recalls the words of the prophet Isaiah here from chapter 53, indicating that the harvest from Isaiah's ministry was also minuscule. Not because Isaiah was not speaking the word of the Lord to them, because he was. But because God had withdrawn His grace to the point that God's word of truth could not be heard and His revelation could not be seen. And the Apostle John continues to see this pattern being played out before his very eyes as he reflects back upon Jesus' ministry and how the people were without excuse. It was not because there was insufficient evidence, because he notes here that there were many who were in positions of influence and power who concluded privately that Jesus was the Messiah, but they were unwilling to stand with Christ and to be counted among his followers because they did not want to suffer the consequences such as being put out of the synagogue. And they were addicted to the accolades of men. Well, The final words of Jesus to the people as recorded by John are found in verses 44 to 50, and we find here themes that Jesus has stated before the oneness that exists between Father and Son, the contrast between the light and the dark, the danger of the coming judgment, 
the Son not speaking his own words, but the words that the Father has given him to speak, as well as the major purpose for the Son coming into the world, which is to save sinners. At the same time, we find in this closing argument some things that Jesus has not stated before, such as verse 45. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. Now this statement means more than a mere recognition that Jesus is a true emissary of God, such as an authorized prophet who accurately brings the word of the Lord to the people of God. Jesus is saying that he is not an ordinary man empowered by the Spirit of God to carry out the will of God, but rather that he is in and of himself the embodiment of the eternal pre-existent Son of God. He is fully God and fully man, and whoever truly sees him through the eyes of faith sees the Father in him. The Apostle Paul declares to the Colossians that Jesus is the image of the invisible God and that in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Now this is not to say that Christ's divinity was plainly discernible for all to see as we will discover in chapter 14 when we get there when Philip says to the says to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and and it is enough for us. And Jesus replies, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So it isn't that there was something about Jesus' body that had an ethereal glow to it that everyone should have detected, but it is to say that by means of saving faith, a person would have recognized that Jesus was the Word of God incarnate. We know that the eyes of the apostles are opened when they meet the risen Christ beginning on Easter, but the one of the twelve who articulates this best is Thomas, whose own encounter with Christ comes a week later. And when he meets the risen Lord, his affirmation of faith is, My Lord and my God. So whatever their understanding of Christ was before the resurrection, it begins to undergo a transformation that concludes that Jesus is God in a way that is mind-boggling. The failure of most to see Jesus this way is due to our sin. The failure to see the Father in Him does not lie with God, but it lies with us. By the same token, the ability to see the Father in the Son is due to the gracious intervention of God towards us. When God opens blind eyes and graciously provides us with the eyes of faith, we begin to see what we could not see before. It's the story of the man born blind back in chapter 9. Do you remember how that chapter ended? Jesus reveals himself specifically and directly to the man whose physical sight has been restored. And John tells us that the man responded to Jesus by saying, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. In other words, he gave to Jesus the adoration that should be reserved for God alone. And then Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, 
that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Well, some Pharisees overheard that comment and they bantered with Jesus saying, Are we blind also? And Jesus said to them in reply, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. In other words, the blind man displayed no pride. He was willing to believe because God's graciousness towards him was so wondrous that he recognized the fingerprints of God on the act of restoring his sight, even though he had been born this way. But the Pharisees, whose pride was so great that they thought they held all the answers to all the theological questions that you could possibly raise, would not consider even the possibility that Jesus might be Messiah. And that intractable heart position kept their blinders firmly in place. And the more they declared that they had all the answers, the more God withdrew His grace. And it affirms Jesus' statement to them, Now that you say we see, your guilt remains. So our inability to see Christ as God is due to our sin. Our ability to see Christ as God is due to God intervening and and curing us of our spiritual blindness. So if a person struggles to see Jesus as God who takes takes on our flesh, let him ask God for mercy. Let him cry out to God like the publican in the temple. Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. For as Jesus says in that story, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And then Jesus declares that he did not come to judge the world, but he came to save the world. Those who will be saved are those who hear Christ's words and keep them. You will remember back in chapter 6 when the vast crowds that were following Jesus turned back when the sayings of Christ began to be difficult to understand and they were offended by them. And Jesus then asked the twelve, What about you? Are you going to turn back as well? And Peter replied, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus characterizes here in this closing statement to the crowd that the words the Father has given him to speak offer eternal life. But conversely, those who do not receive his words, those who reject him, will be judged by the words that Christ has spoken. There will be no need for a prosecuting attorney at the final judgment to make any convincing arguments before God for why a person's guilt remains on them, for it will be plain for all to see that there were opportunities to repent and call upon Christ to save. But those opportunities were rejected because people saw no need for a Savior. What a horrible thing. Because here's a Savior who truly saves. Placing one's faith in Christ is not a vain hope like purchasing a lottery ticket. It is a certainty. It is a living 
hope, as Peter phrases it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter, whose faith nearly failed in the closing moments of Jesus' life, writes here with a conviction that demonstrates the power of Christ to save and to preserve. He has been transformed by the indwelling presence of God's Holy Spirit and will indeed fulfill the Lord's command to him to feed my sheep and to strengthen your brothers. Peter is evidence to the church at large that all the words of Christ are true and that He is a Savior who does not simply offer an alternative path to life, but He is a Savior whose very words communicate eternal life to all who receive them and trust in Him for their salvation. I would imagine that most people realize that the salvation that Christ offers is a salvation unto God. They realize that what Christians are speaking about is a salvation as Peter has just described. God is perfectly loving and has loved the world so much that He has given to them His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. But I don't know that most people stop to consider that what they are being saved from is also God. In other words, God is attempting to save people from Himself. And while it is true that God is perfectly loving, it's also true that God is perfectly just, and He's perfectly holy, and He is perfectly righteous and perfectly good. So if a person rejects the one whom God has sent to save, the one who freely offers the words of life, who spills out his blood on our behalf. If a person refuses to surrender to the Lordship of Christ and declares, no, I don't want the salvation that you're offering to me, then they will have to face the one who is perfectly just and receive the perfect sentence that he will pronounce. Oh, that people would hear the words of Christ and believe them. That I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Beloved, if you are unsure of your salvation, then I invite you to repent and surrender yourself to Christ even now as we pray. Seek His mercy. Ask Him to open your eyes to see Jesus as the very embodiment of God, the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Would you pray with me?